Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Even a casual reader uh, of the Gospels will note very quickly that the Gospel of John has a different feel, a different sensibility, um, a different chronology even, than the Synoptic Gospels. And New Testament scholars have wondered uh, as to the cause of this. Some have pointed out that the Gospel of John also seems to have a certain um, feminine sensibility to it. And might that be because John spent up to 30 years uh, living with the Blessed Mother? My guest, Dr. Michael Pakalek, is the author most recently of Mary's Voice in the Gospel According to John, a new translation with commentary. Michael is a professor of ethics and social philosophy in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He's a member of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. His previous books include um, Other Selves, uh, Philosophers on Friendship, The Appalling Strangeness of the Mercy of God, and the Memoirs of St. Peter, a new translation of the Gospel according to Mark, which we discussed on this program a while back. Michael, it's good to have you back here. Thank you. Hi, Al. It's a real pleasure to be on your show and to speak with you. This, you, you have arrested my attention uh, here. I, I've not considered this point of view before. Um, t- t- talk to me about how it first occurred to you to look at this gospel from the standpoint of the Blessed Mother. Well, frankly, this is the second book I've written on the gospels, and God willing, I'll do four on four gospels. Mm-hmm. And my original intent was simply to do a translation, because I'm a Greek scholar, and when I read the Greek New Testament every day, and I, I see things going on in the Greek text, which I, I don't believe are being captured well by English translations. Right. Mm-hmm. So what I, I want to kind of break that out, and uh, how do I put it? Like the translation slaps someone in the face and gets them to wake up and, and, and think to themselves, that it is like reading the Gospels for the first time, then I've done something successful. Yes. And I try to, I try to make the translation completely accurate, scrupulously accurate, in no way to paraphrase translation. So that's an interesting task, make it completely fresh, but also completely accurate. But mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing I do, say, in Aristotle scholarship. But then when I started working on the Gospel of Mark, it was, um, I became more and more convinced by the quality of the writing, that the view of the early Church, that Mark was a kind of interpreter of St. Peter, and, mm-hmm. and taking down what he'd heard Peter speak out loud so many times, I became convinced of that. And kind of after the fact, I, I built a thesis into, into, the, into the translation and the commentary. With this book on the Gospel of John, it, it took a different approach. I, I, I thought I would do John next. I did Mark first, because it's the shortest, mm-hmm. and John is the most different from Mark. But um, there's a sonnet by Robert Frost, which um, a colleague of mine at Ave Maria University, when I was there, read uh, by memory, or recited by memory after a dinner party, and it's called Never Again Would Bird Song Be the Same. It's, a, it's, it's about um, somebody who imagines that Eve, in the Garden of Eden, when she sang, her song was lifted up into the air and merged with the songs of birds, so that if you listen very carefully today, you could actually hear the voice of Mary in the songs of birds. Hmm. I just think it's just such a brilliant picture, right? You yes. know, figures that Robert Frost would come up with that. And in my kind of pious imagination, I love that poem, I memorized it, I would say it all the time, slowly Eve converted to Mary. And then I, I found myself thinking, well, you know, could Mary's 
song, so to speak, have merged with the song of, of the evangelist or one evangelist, and for the reason that was stated in the introduction, um, Mary lived with John for as many as 30 years. Uh, let's look at the Gospel of John first. So this Gospel, I did approach the translation and commentary with the intent of exploring this thesis. And then as I wrote it, and, you know, it's kind of interesting, every chapter, I didn't have it kind of some baked conclusion, it was exploratory and like detective work as I went along, and every chapter I'd begin and say, well, yeah, I wouldn't have thought there's anything in this chapter which tends to corroborate this thesis, and then you know, by the time I was done with the chapter, I found you know three, four, five things in the chapter that hmm. inconsistent with the thesis, and the, <laughs> and by the end it was Newman calls an accumulation of probabilities. The case seems to me very, very strong at the end. Uh, it's it's fascinating. Uh, I've never considered it before. Um, are you being influenced here by uh, current uh, feminist fascination with uh, recasting the Gospels? Well, n- uh, probably no. I mean, <laughs> um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, I went to Harvard, I attended lectures at Harvard Divinity School, and, and what they like to do is say, you know, Mark was really a woman, and, you know, some woman wrote his Gospel <laughs> and was kind of fobbed off as a man's Gospel. I, that's 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 ridiculous nonsense, in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John is clearly the author of the Gospel. Mm-hmm. The question is, did he, through a kind of, you might say, spiritual osmosis, find himself shaped and formed by living with Mary, so that there's a kind of changing quality, which is, I think, generally very subtle, um, so that he would explain things of one mind, of one heart, um, with Mary, and he would do this quite naturally. And, uh, you know, Mary's outlook is, you know, the mother of God, and, uh, I, you know, I think co-redeemer with Christ, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of the subjective, passive redemption, and mm-hmm. witnessing him on the, uh, the foot of the cross. And, um, and it's this kind of traditional Catholic insight into the kind of the, the view and the voice and the outlook of a woman, which you'd find, for example, in Edith Stein or um, Sigurd Unset, yes. um, Catherine of Siena. That is what I, I want to make myself be a kind of vessel of or, or, or instrument of, because I'm a man and this doesn't come naturally to him. I'm kind of a hard-headed analytic thinker, so uh, I invited my wife, who's an expert on these things, you know, when I was writing it, you know, read this draft, give, give me feedback, teach me more about this. I'm trying to, always trying to incorporate, um, uh, I like to say that um, the commentary reflects my wife's voice in the way that I think that John's gospel reflects Mary's voice. Yes. Kind of mirroring there. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, there is something, you know, on the face of it, uh, I mean, I'm really surprised it never occurred to me before you wrote this commentary. But, you know, the, uh, you've got the, the great prologue in John chapter 1. You have the uh, introduction of John the Baptist. But in, ch- in chapter 2, you've got uh, the marriage feast at Cana, in which Mary plays a significant role. And then, of course, yeah. at the you can look at uh, John 19, uh, verse 25, as, as a climactic verse. Um, yeah. you know, rather than just some bit of housekeeping that Jesus was getting done, you know, <laughs> before yeah. he died. Right. Um, exactly. So uh, you've really got me, really got me thinking on this. Um, and I'm let's let's uh, let's begin then, and also the the historical uh, uh, dimension of this. That of course, if they were living together for thirty years, they must have talked. 
over uh, the life and ministry of Jesus, and John would have had insight uh, into uh, the Son of God that uh, many of the other apostles didn't, with if unless they had spent that kind of time with Mary. So uh, this seems to me, on the face of it, to be a really uh, smart uh, approach. Well, um, you know, the scholars like to talk, uh, not to put off, to, I'll just say one thing, sure. to put off by getting into the particular points, but you know, scholars themselves work in libraries with texts, and that's their natural way of thinking about the composition of work, and that's why you have, for example, redaction criticism, which means editorial criticism, right. looking at prior drafts and influences and other texts that were used by John and so on. And that's all nice and so on. I do it all the time and when I work in Aristotle, but it seems to me at the early church, when you're dealing with such great personages as the mother of God, yes. you really do have to think about personal influence as being pretty important there. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, uh, take us to it then. Where do you, do you want to begin right at the uh, John 1 1? Yeah, let's begin with the prologue. Sure. So, okay. So to appreciate the force of this this approach, um, one has to appreciate certain facts about Mary. So one is a question which, um, you know, did she know that she was bearing God from the first moment of Jesus' conception? Mm -hmm. Some people think that Jesus slowly came to the realization that he was God, which is absurd. Um, Did Mary slowly come to that realization, or did she kind of know it from the get-go? And I think you have to hold that she knew it from the get-go. First of all, the angel did use the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mm-hmm. You know, secondly, the Holy Spirit uh, was re- the agent of conception. You think that the conceived holy offspring yes. would be divine. Mm-hmm. And then you know, lots of spiritual authors have said the Annunciation was like a marriage proposal of God to man, because human and divine natures were wedded together. Right. And St. Thomas even sees wedding marriage in the, in the Garden of Eden as foreshadowing the Incarnation. Mm-hmm. So there's a deep connection between the Incarnation and marriage. And um, so for Mary to give her free assent to this marriage proposal, she'd, she'd have to know what was coming. And, and it would be almost... Um, instrumentalizing her and, and, and putting her at serious risk of sacrilege if she were carrying around God within her, and she didn't know that. It would be right. like, I like to use the analogy of a Catholic being given a pix, which is that that golden uh, kind of uh, lenticular cylinder where, where the Eucharist is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, is moved from place to place, and and being told that, not being told there was something infinitely more precious there than a, than a sliver of bread. I mean, that, that would be just, we wouldn't do it. <laughs> God is clearly not going to do this to Mary, so mm-hmm. she had to know from the get-go, right? Yeah. So then she's meditating on the Word became flesh for nine months. And we know she's a deeply contemplative person, and we know that she stores up things in her heart, and we know that she composes hymns and so on, like the Magnificat, right? Could it be? Now, nothing of this is going to have the nature of proof. It's going to be in the nature of a kind of, you know, after image. Uh, That's why I like the the, yes. You use that illustration. Uh, Give us an idea of what that means. Well, yeah, the illustration of the of the postcard. You need yes, Um, the after image, right? Yeah. So I said, you know, suppose you had a really blurred and old postcard, and you were trying to identify what it was of. And you couldn't really tell what it was of by just looking at the postcard. But if you had three or four sharp images next to it, and you had to say, well, which is this the postcard of? And you were sure that one of them was actually the thing that the faded postcard was of. You'd be able to do that. You'd be able to match it. 
just like uh, in the development of a child, you can go back to even a even a six month old or three month old photograph of an adult mm-hmm. and see the adult's features in yeah. the child that you could never do it in the opposite way. Right. So that's my method to assume robustly that Mary is a, a, an influence, if you will, in the gospel of John, and seeing what things I can, one can identify in the gospel of John is reflecting that. Very good. Hold, hold it there, if you would, Michael. We're going to take a break, come back, and we'll, again, pick it up at John chapter 1, verse 1. My guest, Michael Colick, Mary's voice in the gospel according to John. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Michael Pakalik. He is author, most recently, of Mary's Voice in the Gospel According to John. It's a new translation with commentary. And uh, let's pick it up again from John uh, chapter 1, verse 1, or what commonly is called the prologue. Uh, do you like to call it a prologue? I actually don't. I think it's the analog of the Gospel of John of the infancy narratives. So in Luke nice. and Matthew, okay. you have stories of the human genesis of our Lord, and Matthew's very explicit about this, right? Um, but John is uh, the uh, the, hum- the divine generation of the Word from eternity. That's the first thing that he begins with, right? right. And then and then the generation of, of God-man um, through the Incarnation. And, and, okay, and this is precisely what Mary would have been thinking about during her nine months of pregnancy. So... Um, you know, we know she was responsible for the infancy narratives, and, and she was the, their source, and Luke mm-hmm. and Matthew ultimately took their source. There's no other person who could have been their source. Um, can she ultimately be the source of John? And there, you know, not the sense in which you know she wrote it and John just you know uh, took it up, but again, they were together for 30 years, right. and they talked about these things. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they probably knew about... Uh, I'm persuaded of the view that there's complementarity between the Gospel of John and the Synoptics, so mm-hmm. that the, the content of the manner of presentation of the Synoptics was known to John, even if he may not have had a text of any of the Synoptics in front of him. Right. So that they, he knew that they began with an infancy narrative. I'm pretty sure about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Do we get um, the phrase, and he tabernacled among us, the word became flesh, tabernacled among us, um, is, is this any special significance um, to Mary uh, in the the Catholic consideration of her as Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, so that's how I render it. And he dwelt among us um, at Habitat in Nobis. I render that as, um, and he tabernacled among us. Mm-hmm. Because the, the Greek word really means to live in a tent yeah. or a tabernacle. And so I, I'm not even sure that's an English word, but it, it, everybody knows immediately what you mean if you say tabernacle right. among us, you live in a tabernacle. No, I specifically wanted to um, bring to mind two things. First, the Jewish notion of a tabernacle, but secondly, the modern Catholic practice of a tabernacle where our Lord is, res, is reserved and present, um, because that's what Mary was. So it is the phrase that John uses, strikingly. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's right? amazing, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that is amazing. It's really there. Um, to John two, uh, the wedding feast at Cana. What what uh, I want to jump there right away because it seems to me there's probably quite a bit of material there for us. Um, you know, yeah, there's so much. Yeah, we could we could do a couple of shows just on that chapter. Yeah. It's so wonderful. 
Yeah, talk I, to I, I want to tell your listeners that, for me, one of the great joys of working on this book is that the Catholic tradition is so rich in commentaries on the Gospel of John. I mean, not Mark, actually. There isn't really a commentary until about the ninth century. But John, you know, St. John Chrysostom has homilies on the Gospel of John. St. Augustine has tractates on the Gospel of John. St. Thomas Aquinas, people say you don't know St. Thomas until you've read his commentary yes, on the Gospel I've of John. He's got mm-hmm. just a fantastic commentary on the Gospel of John. Then he has the Catena Aurea, which is kind of weaving together of all the fathers on the Gospel of John, which John Henry Newman translated, by the way. So you ha- and, But then you have this other source, which I mind with this book, which is John Henry Newman's writings. So it turns out the Gospel that he loved the most, that he would refer to the most in his homilies, was the Gospel of John. So whenever I wrote on a gospel, you know, chapter 2, verse 4, I would look in the index of Newman's writings, find out what homily he had spoke on that verse, and go seek it. And if there was something very interesting in which to, to draw out and to put into the book, then I got to do, then I did that. So it's also, the book is also kind of commentary by Newman on the gospel of John. Like, I wanted to walk side by side with Newman in this book, because yeah. I think he has such a great personalist grasp of what's going on in the Gospel of John. Very good. So so I was deeply influenced by a, um, a sermon which Newman preached called Our Lord's First Supper and His Last, where he makes that very point that you were referring to in the, in the first segment, in saying, um, you know, when our, when our Lord says to his mother, what is it to me and to you, woman, my time has not yet come, mm-hmm. uh, which looks a little bit like a rebuff, um, and it is in a certain sense, um, he says, actually, he says, my hour has not yet come. And Newman points out that hour is used by John and, and other evangelists to mean the hour of the Passion. Right. So it's as if Jesus is saying that we need to separate now. You raised me, you nursed me, you taught me, I've been in your home, we need to separate, but when my hour comes, you will be there again. Yeah. So he deliberately makes that connection. Very good, yeah. Through the cross. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's 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 a fascinating detail from Newman. Now, what's interesting about um, Cana is that that rebuff, whatever it is, and you know, woman is is a soft term of address. It's genteel. It's polite. It's like saying my lady. It's not a harsh okay. or contemptuous word at all, right? Um, it does make it clear that Jesus was not prepared to do this miracle, but for Mary's intervention. Yeah. And it, it signals that. Right? Yeah, and. And so Mary, and John deliberately says that this is the first miracle that Jesus worked in public. So it's, Mary appears at the very start as the one who elicits, right. who draws forth our Lord, if you, will, if you will, from his private life to his public life. She's the one who presents him, so to speak, to the world with this request for a miracle. Yes. And then what she says is so amazing, because she says, you know, she just says to him, they have no more wine, right? Um, and you have to say, well, obviously, that's the way a woman would speak. And by the way, she noticed that they were running out of wine. And probably she and Jesus were only, only two who were aware of that. And it's so typical of a woman to notice and then to put it in that way. But, you know, you have to ask, well, what did she expect Jesus to do? I mean, Jesus went on to make the equivalent of 800 bottles of wine. It must have been a large feast. Mm-hmm. There was nothing else that could have been done except to create wine. Yeah. That was the only purpose of her address. And then when he tells the steward to do whatever he tells he tells you, she's you know, he wasn't gonna tell her 
get some wagons and we'll go down to you know Capernaum or to Jerusalem and, and get some wineskins filled with wine. It, there's only one thing he could have said which would have addressed the need, and that's uh, to create wine with his with his word. Yeah. And and um, you know, only God creates. Yes. It, so here she is appearing at the public uh, manifestation of our Lord with complete faith in his divinity mm-hmm. as having the power to create. Yes. Yes. And 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 confident that he will respond affirmatively uh, to her. I mean she she's she doesn't do a lot of pleading here. Um she doesn't try to yeah. argue him into it. This is uh interesting, yeah. It's a rather chaste discussion. Word. Yeah. Yeah, and that suffices. Yeah. 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 And 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 you said the you know, the words on our our Lord's seven words from the cross are not these kind of spontaneous improvised things that have no meaning. They're deeply meaningful, mm-hmm. and but you could say for John's gospel, he thinks everything in his gospel has that status. And he says near the end, if you were to write down everything that Jesus did, he doubts that all the books in the world yeah. and all the spaces in the world could contain it. Right, right. But he's written what twenty-one chapters, and you know they're very, you know, they're relatively short. He's aware that he's selecting out something. Yes, from the very, you know. So everything he selects out has deep significance. He selected out these words of Mary uh, at the start of the public life of our Lord. I've always looked at uh, Jesus' acts throughout the Gospel of John as historical, but they're also parabolic. Um, Yes. No, they're they're definitely historical, but but they, they, they have the details and the storytelling there. Are just rich with significance and uh, very and, and, you know, artful. By, that's how the fathers read the gospel, and how liberating it is, right? So, not to move to well, here's the message. Therefore, what didn't happen? How much more interesting is to say it happened, and it also has this message for yes. the parabol- par- parabolic. Yeah, but God, God, of course, is the God of providence. He makes things happen in a way that what actually historically happened tells something at the same time. Do you, uh, in in terms of Jesus's, it's, it's often been pointed out that the Gospel of John has Jesus makes uh, uh, these "I am" statements. Um, does that have any special connection to the Blessed Mother's influence? Yeah, that thesis explains it seems to me so easily mm-hmm. and naturally. Right. So Jesus has expresses um, awareness of and his divinity and awareness of his divinity very plainly in the Gospel of John in seven places where he uses I am, which is the divine name, yeah. for Yahweh. Right, and this is not in the synoptics. And, and like in the crazy world of 19th century German scholarship, this led scholars to say, well, the Gospel of John had to have been written in the third century, because only then did the Church in its creedal statements begin to clarify clearly that Arianism or some type of Arian thinking or Docetism was wrong, and therefore we have to date this relatively late, which they held until a fragment of the Gospel of John was discovered, which was dated from about 100 AD. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Well, there goes that piece. Right, right. Right. Right, but if you say, okay, this is so clear, like what we even notice depends upon our conceptual framework, somebody might want to call it, you know, what we understand. Right, if you're, if you're a scientist and you look at something in a laboratory, you'll notice a hundred things that your layman won't even notice. Because it doesn't even have names for it, it doesn't have the conceptual framework. So that Mary would 
notice and then remember statements of Jesus where actually, you know, except for before Abraham was, I am. That's that's the only one which is kind of in your face. The other one's right. very subtle, right? I am um, the light you know, world, yeah. That she would be the only, and you know, the, that, the, that one, it's hard to believe no one would remember that. But even if it were remembered by, say, Mark, he's so intent on telling the life of Jesus from the viewpoint of the disciples, who are so bewildered and confused that he, you know, he might, you know, for authorial reasons, leave that out, because he's telling the viewpoint of misunderstandings and confusions. That's what he's telling. Sure, sure. And it's interesting, the Gospel of John, it's being told from the viewpoint of Jesus, not from the disciples. And, uh, you know, this is a viewpoint that a mother very naturally takes. She's kind of a defender and an advocate, and someone who's so compassionate and joined with her son, it's very natural for a mother to take some viewpoint. Of course, Mary would notice these things in the Magnifica has this, this, this line, and holy is his name. She has tremendous zeal for the name of God. She would be on the lookout for the name of God. She'd notice it. She would remember it. And since it's a gospel told from the viewpoint of Jesus, it would fit in perfectly with the authorial intention to include it. So it's very, very naturally explained why there are these seven I am statements in the Gospel of John in this way. Yes. Yes. And they also correspond with the seven signs, as you say there. What, what uh, I've got, got about 60 seconds left, Michael. Um, how, get, what kind of, are you getting the reviews yet on this? Excuse me? You, what? Are you getting the reviews yet on, the, on this? Yes. Tell yes. me what the responses have been. Just really strong. People yeah. really love it. Yeah. Yeah, very, very strong. Good. Good. And there's one at the, in the appendix that you take on uh, David Bentley Hart, who's recently declared that he's a universalist, that all will be saved. And you deal with this phrase in English, the everlasting life. Uh, anything quickly you can say about that? Well, look, this alone, I mean, people, actually reviewers, I'm a little disappointed, don't mention it. The appendix itself is, I think, a decisive refutation of David Bentley Hart's translation in the New Testament and his construction of what the phrase everlasting life means in the Gospel of John. And then there's this nice twist, because I had that reputation, and my editor said, can you put in something about Mary to end it? And I thought to myself, okay, let's look at the assumption, which would have taken place before John Rose's Gospel. Is this emphasis on everlasting life the first, you know, something that would be natural if somebody had actually known about, maybe even witnessed the assumption? So I I raised that question and answered in the appendix, and I think it's a great way of ending the book. Okay. Michael, thanks so much. Uh, We'll talk again. Beautiful.